Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how and what we write. My guest today is Bonnie McBird. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with uh, your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, I am currently uh, writing a series for HarperCollins. It's called the Sherlock Holmes Adventure Series, and they're full-length novels, but otherwise in the style of Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, original 56 short stories and four novellas uh, of Sherlock Holmes. So they take place in that era, and they aim to uh, more or less reproduce the style and the voice of the originals. And, uh, okay, well, let's, I know there's a lot more to you than that. So let's sort of rewind as it were (laughs) and, uh, go back to the start. So when did you, when did you first get into the idea of writing? What made you think, oh, okay, this is something I want to do, uh, you know, for a living. I wanted to write since the time I was a little kid, uh, and it became really uh, clear to me in high school. Um, I had a wonderful English teacher, and uh, one of the weird uh, things he asked us to do is he would give us random objects or character types, and he would have us write a short story that included all of these objects or thing, you know. And I remember just loving that challenge, and and um, actually to this day, I like writing to constraints way. So certainly uh, doing Sherlock Holmes is that, but um, I think I wanted to do it. I was very inspired. um, uh, When I was in a senior in high school, uh, we had to do our college applications and uh, they always ask you to write an essay. And so they asked me to write a book that inspired me. And I horrified my parents and my advisor by choosing something that didn't sound very literary to them. I chose The Making of Star Trek (laughs) as as my influence book. And the reason I chose it it was this. I said, um, Gene Roddenberry um, created a world in which he could project. He was a former cop. He'd seen the worst of humanity. And he, he, he created a world in which he could project his optimistic view of what human beings could be like, what civilization could be like. And I said, then also this book went into great detail about filmmaking. And filmmaking is the art form that encompasses all the other art forms. And so for this reason, I was just so inspired by the, all the aspects of this book. And I went on to, I got accepted at my uh, university of choice <laughs> and, um, I went on to study film and wanted to be a screenwriter, which I was for many years. So I wanted to be a writer back then. So your, your parents and your, your school advisor disapproved, but it went down well with the, with the college. Yeah, Stanford Stanford accepted me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then, uh, just, okay, so that's interesting that what got you, what inspired you to be a screenwriter was kind of seeing behind the curtain, as it were. I mean, I assume you obviously you'd watched movies and TV up until that point, but it was it was seeing it from the other side of the camera, as it were, seeing that making of book uh, that inspired yes. you to actually, you know, um, go into that area yes i i did and i i got my um i got two degrees from stanford i got a uh, my ba was in music but my master's degree was in communication with a specialty in film and i left there uh, wanting to be a screenwriter and probably a producer i i wasn't really sure what that meant exactly but uh, i just had some ideas that i wanted to put out into the world and um so my first 
job outside out of university was um well, I did a couple of, you know, little jobs. I was an AD on a small film and I did some assistant editing because I wanted to get experience in the variety, the you know, the various parts of filmmaking. Mm. But my first real job that really connected uh, with me was um, I got a job as a reader at Universal Studios. <clears throat> and uh, before long, I was working directly for the head of the story department. And a few weeks after that, I was working directly for the head of feature films. So I became his story editor. And over four years, I spent at Universal. <clears throat> I basically acted the way an editor does in a publishing house, only for all of the scripts that were in development in feature films. So I would read every draft of every script, <laughs> make notes, copious notes. Um, I would work with the writers. I also read a lot of material that came in to um, to try to you know help sort and get you know promote the the things that I thought would be would be good films for us. And uh, Universal at that time was trying to pull itself away from the reputation of being a B-movie studio. And they just had uh, Jaws as a huge hit. And they were riding very high and they were trying to expand their repertoire to do. And they had, they had a list that actually had a list. We want, you know, uh, the Oscar winning film. We want the serious, you know, uh, <laughs> literary film. We want the drive-in movie film. We want, you know, they had all these you know, crazy action movies movies and so forth. So anyway, I worked on a huge variety of them. And um, this gave me an incredible grounding in plotting, mm. in pacing, and in how, you know, screenplays are different from novels and you really have to show because uh, you don't have the benefit of, you know, the inner, inner monologue. So it's only what people say and what they do that reveals their character or their intent. You can't, you know, it's very rare unless you're Truffaut. You didn't really put in, uh, you know, uh, narration as voicing their thoughts. So um, that grounding was extremely, you know, now years and years later, as I'm a novelist, I have the benefit of being able to put the thoughts in, but I still... I'm grounded, very grounded in that the story has to move what they do and what they say. And weirdly enough, it's kind of come full circle because Arthur Conan Doyle's style, especially compared to other Victorian writers, was very much what we would call cinematic now mm. because uh, it, there's a lot more dialogue in it than other writers of the same era. Also, <clears throat> it's narrated by John Watson, and he's a man of action. <laughs> so the story buzzes along. I mean, it does not, you know, he'll he'll set the scene with the with the winds and the cold and the fog and the so forth, but he moves right into what's happening. He doesn't linger over that stuff. And so in some ways, I think my film training has really informed and helped my ability to tell a story with pace and energy. Yeah, I think it's vital for that sort of approach to yeah even to prose fiction i mean the other thing about conan doyle stuff is that uh that struck me when i first read it when i was a young man was that something's always happening yep uh you know as you say compared to a lot of the other authors of that era and maybe that's because of its roots in you know the sort of in the, as a magazine uh feature rather than as novels you know all the short stories but yeah there is always whether it's a conversation or whether it's actual movement and, you know, uh, action as we would think of it, there is always something happening in a home story. There's no navel gazing. 
Yes, exactly. And even when there isn't actual action like fighting and running and things, there there is underlying movement. Uh, you know, a new clue arrives or a new thought or something happens that changes the, the changes, whatever is going on, changes the energy. But I also think it's because Conan Doyle himself was a very active man. He was a, he was a sportsman. He was very vibrant. And he, uh, you know, he, he actually in real life, he played a bunch of sports and he was he was very active. So and he always had wanted to fight in a war, but he never got the chance. He was a medic in the Boer War, but he didn't get a chance to really, you know, go to battle. But he he was somebody who was personally uh, very active. And I think that 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 underlying drive, that push, was present in, you know, John Watson, the army surgeon, um, etc. So there was a, a lovely energy, which I love. And, you know, it's not me personally, and yet I so relate to it and really, really like it. Okay, so uh, before, we'll, we'll come back to Holmes uh, in a while, but I can't move on from this sort of early part of your life without mentioning Tron. Uh, because, because of our, I know our audience, uh, uh, and me, frankly, I'm a huge fan of that film. How on earth did you come to get involved in, you know, one of the most iconic movies of the last century? So first of all, I was very interested in computers before I ever met Steven Lisberger or any of this idea was even, you know, born. Uh, I was interested as a kid because I was in a, I was in a special class as in junior high and we had, we, we taught, we were taught logic. We were taught the uh, early, early aspects of programming. It was all just done on paper, of course. And then at university at Stanford, I took a um, programming class from Donald Knuth, who happens to be like a giant in the field. I didn't know that then. I was just a you know an undergrad, uh, but he he had these huge classes, and and we did we programmed on a PDP eleven with punch cards. But I loved 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 programming. It was um, there's the the cool logic of it, the the uh, the puzzle quality of it, and yet it also had an aesthetic quality. I just I loved programming. Uh, unfortunately, once you took that class at university, you had to branch into one of two directions. You had to go somewhere where I needed more math than I had, or you had to go into business applications, which interested me not at all. So I didn't pr- proceed with that, but I just kept the fondness for this stuff. Then when I was at Universal, <clears throat> and I was there for four years, Universal Studios, I tried to get them to uh, use, they have they had a big, you know, mainframe computer that they used for accounting and various things. But I, I tried to link that to the story department so that they could catalog all the submissions. Uh, that way they could easily find, you know, if someone, you know, they had a movie star that, you know, whatever, and they, want, and they wanted to shoot in, you know, Panama or something, and they could quickly find any, any leading lady um, scripts that had, you know, had Panama. In other words, they could oh, right, right. <laughs> find all these things. So I, I proposed it to them as a, as a cataloging tool. Uh, you know, and the uh, front end uh, would have to be designed in terms of how you input the stuff. But the, they were so backward about this at this time. This was, okay, I'm going to age myself now big time. This is the 70s, okay? <laughs> and they they were so afraid that it was going to take all the creativity away. And I said, it's a card catalog system. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the creativity at all. But they, they didn't see it. So they didn't do that. But then... Um, I was working toward the end of my uh, time there. I was working on a project called Lightning for a producer named Jennings Lang. He was the one that did um, 
earthquake <laughs> and uh let's see he did he did airport he did these big giant oh, okay, disaster yeah, yeah. and he invented sense around actually anyway so he had a notion about doing a big uh big show another big uh you know uh, uh disaster show around lightning so he brought in this animator from uh, Boston named Steven Lisberger. And they and Steven Lisberger had a special effect that would make lightning look really cool. And he said, yeah, but you have, we need a story. So here's Bonnie. <laughs> Bonnie, <laughs> story. Steve, talk about how the, the thing could look. So we worked together briefly on this. It didn't go anywhere, but we enjoyed working together. And we thought, oh, well, this is a good combination. We, we each have something the other person doesn't have. We have we're a good good combo. So I left Universal <clears throat> with two projects in mind with Stephen. Uh, one was uh, Tron, and the other was uh, something that, you know, it was called, let's see, what was it called? Seven, seventh Heaven. Yeah, it was going to be a kind of a fairy tale fantasy film. Anyway, so we, we started working on that together. And um, we, I worked for two years on this film. And during that time, uh, Stephen and I had pretty much of a rift, and we no longer got along. So by the end of it, uh, it was not a, it was not a friendly parting, unfortunately. Um, and so when the when the film went to Disney, uh, they bought my script um, that I had written and I spent two years on. I did a whole ton of research, by the way, for this. Mm. Um, I went at that time. There was one computer store in all of L.A. Oh wow. <laughs> It was where you could buy parts to make your own homebrew stuff. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, and it was a little back street in Santa Monica. And we visited all kinds of video game arcades and so forth. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, <laughs> I um, I when I was at Universal, just before I left Universal, I saw Robin Williams perform in a in a nightclub, and I thought, oh my god, I love this man so much. I like to write for actors, and I, he inspired me so much that I wrote origi- I wrote the original Tron for him. He was to be the guy that fell inside the computer, and oh wow, you know. Had, so he was. So it also was a different tone. It was a it was a much funnier uh, script, although it had a lot of science in it. So it was a, quite a different movie than came out. Now I I really have to applaud Stephen for the visuals because I thought they were fantastic, and so was. Uh, um, Jeff Bridges was wonderful, and so was the music. But the script, I'm embarrassed by the script. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I didn't write a line of that dialogue. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed by it, honestly. But I, but many things about the film and the underlying idea uh, I'm very proud of. But anyway, so uh, Robin Williams was uh, who I was aiming to have star in it. And then right before we made our deal with Disney, he got, he had got more Mindy and then he took off and then he wasn't available. Suddenly. Ah, yes. <laughs> he was just a, a young budding comic right before that. So anyway, um, so they went off and did it. And Stephen, you know, Stephen and I, he had, he had an idea of making it kind of quasi religious and rather serious and so forth. And uh, I felt that stuff should have been in the background and way, way underneath. Uh, you get it if you get it, but that's not the point of it. So we had a different 
taste quite a bit. But um, but in the research for this movie, I went to Xerox Park. I don't know if you know what Xerox Park is. Yes, indeed. Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so for those who are listening who don't, it was where all the seminal work was done that created um, the the computer interface we now know, which is the overlapping windows, the mouse, um, what you see is what you get, WYSIWYG, etc., and laser printing, a whole bunch of stuff. Steve Jobs had a tour and he was given a tour by Alan Kay about, I don't know, three weeks. I can't remember this before or after. I got the same tour from Alan Kay. <laughs> and Alan Kay is one of the um, people there who is responsible for this, his, his group, the Learning Research Group. He, was one, uh, he will be the first to tell you he was one of many, but uh, he's, he's largely credited with, with a bunch of this stuff. Well, Alan and uh, Alan and I hit it off, and I hired him as the technical consultant for Tron. So we worked together for two years, and now we've been married for <laughs> since then. I, I was going to ask how you met, but there you go you've uh, you've answered it in advance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's so we've been married ever since then. And and Alan jokes he thinks our marriage came out better than the movie, but. <laughs> <laughs> We, we we've enjoyed uh, being we really hit it off and have enjoyed being together and um but alan was pretty turned off by the how most of the scientific input was sort of dumped uh during the various uh there were eight writers after me and um all of that went under the rug oh wow that many yeah so he was he was disappointed in because both of us had really i had in my mind that um there would be a very deep, uh, again, in the background, <laughs> uh, all the science was going to be real, absolutely real, so that the movie would work on about a million levels for people. It had to work you know, on the top level as a, an adventure story with a lot of humor. Most of the humor was excised, but an adventure story with a lot of humor and incredible visuals. And then this crazy guy that falls inside. And then underneath all that would be like, what's really inside a computer? What's fabulous about it? What's dangerous about it? You know, they're kind of like different lands. There's there's entrapment areas. There's places where you can get lost and you can get a loop. You can never get out. I mean, there's all kinds of all kinds of wonderful adventure stuff that comes from the description of what actually is in there. So some of that made it in, not all of it. Uh, but but Alan was disappointed in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the science elements that were lost. Um, and he took his name off of it. But but nevertheless, I think um, some combination of the concept uh, and the incredible visuals and and also um, Jeff Bridges <laughs> uh, have made it have made it appeal to a lot of people. Well, and there's also the fact that most people watching it, certainly when I saw it and I saw it uh, on release, I was like nine, ten years old, you know, had no idea about i mean we obviously we knew that what we were seeing was a fantasy of a computer but we also had no concept of what you know how a computer actually worked so all of that kind of would have sailed over my head anyway you know the thing about this is is that for any kind of um any kind of fantasy or adventure even i feel like having truth underneath it even if it isn't apparent to the viewer ends up resonating in a way. And sometimes mm. they come back to it. You know, like I've been told many times that people have actually gone into computer programming because they were inspired as a kid by that movie. Yeah. Now, if they then later did that, they would then have seen, oh my God, <laughs> you know, all this stuff is like, this is really what's there. You know, they then later right, would right. have gotten 
And then those people who were already working in it would have gotten it. And then that would have started a, another level of conversation about the film. So, no, it's not the leading edge selling point, certainly. I mean, I'm, I know that, obviously. But it, for the same reason, I, I like the science, or I insist, actually, that the science and the history and the objects in my Victorian thrillers are real. I was just going to make that same segue. Well done. Uh, so I was going to say, <laughs> I, in, I've read the first of your Sherlock Holmes adventures, Art in the Blood, and the, you make a point in your notes, which are on your website, actually, for that book, that almost all of the science in it, well, no, I think all of the science, but certainly almost all of the uh, fictionalized ways that that science is used are very much grounded in reality and real science. Yes, I, I, I'm a... I'm a, I guess I'm a science groupie in a way. <laughs> I'm not a scientist. I'm married to one. I sure know the difference, but, uh, but I'm kind of a science groupie. And yes, and I want my stuff to be real, even if I don't know it at the time of reading. There's a, there's a verisimilitude that is important, I think, uh, whenever you're dealing with either science fiction or with, um, you know, uh, historical fiction, actually any fiction, really. Yeah, I mean, I try to do a similar thing with my uh cyber espionage thrillers where i will you know most of it is based in real technology i will occasionally take leaps uh which obviously i have the benefit of doing because i can sort of they're set in the present day so i can imagine yes. things that might happen tomorrow you can't do that with victorian things obviously but i will sometimes when i'm writing come up against a section where i i need something to happen and i don't know exactly how it can happen but i'll assume that it can be done and i'll kind of write around it and then later, you know, after I've done that sort of rough draft, then I'll go to uh, one of the technical people that I call on and say, OK, if I wanted to do something like this, how would I go about it? How would it work? And sometimes it slots right in. Sometimes I have to change the scene slightly to make it fit with something that is more plausible or more realistic. But I think it really does. Doing that gives you a, a certain, as you say, a verisimilitude that kind of just benefits the book not only for people who do know those details when they're reading it but also even just the casual reader i think you can you can tell sometimes when the the science of something is real whether or not you actually know it factually for yourself you just kind of get the impression yes i, I totally agree i totally agree anthony um you know it's interesting because what the process you just described I would call reverse engineering. And I do exactly the same thing. So in the book that it's about to come out, I had to have a, um, I had a scene in which uh, a, an escape artist um, self-immolates inside of a, 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 a device on, while on stage. That's a hell of a concept. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so... So I, I had an idea about how Holmes would figure this out and what was left on the what residue or whatever was left. And I, you know, so I said, can this happen? Can this? Happen? And I found my experts as well, as well. And I usually have a little group of them for each book because they kind of, you know, touch on different aspects of of science at the time. And, you know, I said, would this could this, you know, so I did exactly what you <laughs> what you just described and you know then i then i went back and changed it so that it was plausible it would really happen and do you find anthony when you're doing this that every now and then some little glint of gold happens and you know you've nailed it <laughs> oh absolutely I, i've talked about this before with other writers about this this part of the process where sometimes and this happened actually in the last bridget sharp book uh i had 
a thing like that where I wanted something to happen and I went to uh, a friend, a very sort of technically knowledgeable friend and said, okay, I want something like this. What would you suggest? And the conversation we had actually not only solved that problem in a, in a way that I would never have thought of, but also gave me inspiration for something else yes, that happened yes. later in the book that was completely unconnected. But yes. I thought, oh, hang on a minute, I can use that elsewhere as well. It's so funny. Yeah, isn't that fun how that serendipitous thing happens? And it's, it, I feel like it's kind of a sense of smell as a writer. It's like, this smells good. <laughs> you know, or, or, or it's like catching a glimpse of gold in a big pile of pebbles or something. Uh, it, it's just, it's, a, it's like a sensory response to the idea. And you know it has legs or you know, it ha- you know it's going to, uh, sometimes I, I, when I teach my screenwriting class, I say every scene should have octopus arms of plot to other scenes. And, um, and so th- it's these octopus arms <laughs> that extend that and you go, Oh yes, this can pay off here. I can bring this back or I can set this up this way. Or, you know, suddenly you just, you just know, you just know that this is gold. And, um, so I, I wanted, I wanted Holmes to look inside this thing and see that, see fingerprints burned into the side of it. And that was impossible. <laughs> that was, that would not happen. Uh, <laughs> and so, so I was like, Oh darn, that was such a good image, but that won't work. So then I had to, you know, like, like you just described reverse engineer, what are some of the things that could happen? And then I found one that was, that really worked. So, <laughs> but yeah, that, it, that's the fun part to me is that stuff. Do you find that fun? Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I think it also relates to what you said earlier about working within constraints. And, you know, that's an oft used phrase that uh, artistic constraints can actually force creativity because, you know, if you can do anything, it's very easy to get paralyzed because you can do anything. But if you have restrictions and if you have these limits of what you can do, but you're free to do anything within them, then it does force you to you know, come up with workarounds and think of new ways to approach something. And I find that's often the same with those technical and scientific or even just factual aspects, you know, where not science per se, but simply looking up, researching the facts about, I don't know, a location or an event or something. And they will quite often spark ideas, which make you think, oh, okay, well, I can't do that, but I could do this. Yeah, exactly. So fun. I mean, that's that's where research is, is just so incredibly fun. And and I like to go to places too. I like to go where I where I'm um setting the thing. Um and you know, so like for my second book, uh Unquiet Spirits, uh it has to do with the whiskey business. And um so I very early on took on a whiskey expert <laughs> who led me through, you know, various distilleries and so forth to visit, but he told me among them was one uh, way out in the in Isla uh, and the island of Isla, and it um, it had a, a dis- the complete distillery equipment from the Victorian era extant and working. Oh wow! <laughs> and so I went out there, and it was like, wow, you know, here's an area that you know floods with carbon dioxide, and you can just die standing there. Here's an area. <laughs> It's like, I mean, so many fascinating things, carbon monoxide, I mean, uh, and so many fascinating things were there that just lent themselves to to ideas and, uh, you know, were, were quite fun. Another another thing on that on that trip, I went to a castle in the Highlands that uh, fit uh, fit the description of what I had in my head, which was a, a 
which was a an ancient castle, but that had been redone in the Victorian era. And I went to exactly that. And they had something there called an ice house, which looked like a little hut, little stone hut from the outside. But underneath was this very deep pit and they would fill it with ice and use it all through the year. Uh, and this, and actually uh, Queen Victoria had started this trend and she brought in her ice from the great lakes <laughs> in the, in America. Oh, wow. So, so the wealthy people would have these ice houses. And um, so that, that lent itself to a whole scene, you know, discovering that. So these kinds of things are, I mean, you know, you spend hours on a train and you think, am I really spending my time well here? What am I doing? And then, But, you know, every now and then you just walk into these crazy, interesting things. It, you, well, and the problem is that you never know what will be truly useful in advance. You know, if we knew that, it's, it's like saying that if only we knew what would make somebody laugh. Well, if we knew that, we'd all be millionaires. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you, you have to go down these routes and explore these things and do this research, knowing that half of it maybe, or maybe even more may not make it into the work and may yeah. lead you down these sort of into dead ends. But the, the ones that work, the ones that do make it into the book or spark an idea or something are, you know, worth their weight in gold, but you won't find them unless you look down all of the paths. Yes, yes. And also, if you allow yourself to wander down a path that that has no chance at all of paying off, and yet something just calls you, <laughs> and you develop an instinct, I guess, or you, or you allow yourself the freedom, maybe that's a better way to put it. But can I, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, Anthony, which is the freeing constraints notion for an artist. Um, you know, uh, this is one of the things that, um, <clears throat> that I like to talk about when I'm teaching writing, is that I believe that any experience you have in any art form pours into your writing. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm a visual artist as a as a hobby, really, um, and I've stepped. But I'd study. I've studied quite a lot. My idea of a good vacation is to do something else intensely. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So I'll take you know painting workshops or this kind of thing. Anyway, so uh, a wonderful art teacher named uh, Betty Edwards who wrote Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. She talks about freeing constraints in a really interesting way. She said, you know, if you give children, tiny children, you know, a, a blank piece of paper and every color of crayon on the planet and just say, oh, do whatever you like. Uh, most, a lot of them won't know what to do or don't do much or they'll just make a big mess. And it's kind of eh. But if you give a child uh, and you say, pick, pick three colors or pick two colors and trace your hand and do whatever you want with that idea, these two colors in your hands, tracing your hands anywhere you want or in any way, suddenly they get artworks, these beautiful things these kids have done, you know, tiny children with their hands in a couple of colors. And it's because they, the idea, you know, they're, they're, the selective ideas are smaller so that what they can do is more playful and more freeing. Mm -hmm. So, and, and comes out better. So there's something to be said about, freeing constraints, but an artist facing a blank page or a writer facing a blank page going, I can just do anything. Sometimes that's not the best thing. <laughs> yeah, no, as I say, it can induce paralysis, can't it? I've certainly had that where, yeah, you know, I'm kind of, as you say, effectively looking at the blank page going, well, I can do anything here. And that you just stare at it going, but I can do anything. That's like, how can I be expected to make a decision? <laughs> 
Right. It's too much freedom, really. Yeah. Uh, so you have, you have to define your goals. And then um, so there's some kind of like, you know, I always think of that. I guess it's from the first Star Wars, you know, when the when those little I forget what they're called. Even those they were shooting down the tiny tunnels trying to get to, you know, get in the Death Star. Take out the Death Star. Yeah. And it's like you, a little to the left, a little to the right. And you're dead. <laughs> This is going to be right down the line there. You know, it's like we got this little tiny thing. So you've got to like find your your groove. You know, you got to find your groove and then fly down it courageously. Because when you do that, you get to the essence of what working is, what the thing that works is. And it's, you know, to convey fear or to bump, bump the plot along or to show something about this character. I mean, there's a thing that you're doing that is a, is a storytelling element that you need to convey. And there's usually more than one way to do that. Yeah, exactly. The other things are just window dressing. So, of course, on the page, we don't have budgetary constraints. <laughs> no, no, indeed. No, but you do have, and I mean, this touches a little on something that I wanted to ask you, which is why, I mean, I'm assuming that you love Sherlock Holmes. Fair enough. You know, many of us do. But writing Holmes is a double-edged sword, maybe a triple-edged sword, because you've got, I mean, there have been so many versions that everybody has their own mental image of what Holmes is and who Holmes is. And so on the one hand, you get the benefit of not having to do the legwork, if you like, of introducing the character because everybody knows Sherlock Holmes, but you're fighting against everybody else's mental idea of who Holmes is. So it's a really, it strikes me that it's a really tricky balance to strike. And I'm wondering why you decided to go in that direction rather than you know, making your own original Victorian detective or something for these stories? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I sometimes ask myself. And, <laughs> um, because uh, it, it is laden with, you know, um, bombs and, you know, landmines and stuff because uh, people are so incredibly opinionated on it. And also there's so much. And, and unfortunately, there continues to be a, a quite a large number of these, many of which are you know, awful, <laughs> but some are, quite, some are good, but there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. Um, the reason I did it actually was, um, I, I got very ill, um, a few years ago and, uh, you know, very dangerously ill and had several surgeries and so forth. And at the end, I'm quite fine now. It's all, all done and over. But good. when I came out of that, I looked at my life and I have very few, uh, bucket list items i've done most things i want to do and uh and i thought to myself what you know what is it that i do i have a bucket list item because <laughs> i came very close to dying and that makes you go hmm mm, yeah <laughs> so so i thought okay so what is it that i really want i want to write a novel and i said well that's going to take me a year or two years i know it because i know what it takes to do that um who do i want to spend that time with well i just Sherlock Holmes just popped out. I've loved Holmes since I was 10. <laughs> and I keep reconnecting to that character throughout the years. I, my, of course, I watched all the Basil Rathbone you know, as a kid. And, you know, but then going on through the, through the years, I, I mean, 
uh, I fell in love with House. You know, I fell in love with, you know, there was young Sherlock Holmes. There was uh, yeah, the Granada series just blew me away. I watched them over and over and over. Um, and then Robert Downey Jr. had just come out and Sherlock was just starting. And I just realized how much I love this character. So I thought, okay, well, this is going to be really hard for all the reasons you just mentioned. First of all, everybody knows Holmes. Everybody has an opinion. Uh, lots of people are doing it. And also, it's just really hard, actually, because you have to deliver on paciness. You have to deliver on period and all the details. You have to deliver the language. You have to deliver the the actual sentence structure that, that he used. Uh, and you have to get inside the mind of an army doctor, a Victorian male army doctor. I mean, there's just every impediment in the way. And I just said, oh, how fun. <laughs> Free and constrained, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, you know, and I'll do it in sonnet form too. Anyway, so so I just said, oh, I got to do this. This is this will be crazy fun. And I said, I'm just going to do this for myself, and I'll self publish, and I'm not going to worry about it. I just want I, this is what I want to do. So I said out, I missed NaNoWriMo. It was, and I decided I would do a NaNoWriMo, but on my own time. And I started Christmas Day of I think. 2011, something like that. I sat down and in 30 days, I had a really, really, really rough first draft of the whole novel. Wow, that's really quick. Well, it is. But I, when I, I say that, it was so rough. It changed. I, I spent another year and a half, I have to tell oh, you. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. <laughs> but but it, was a, it was a good skeleton and I found my voice and, you know, et cetera. So uh, I, then, because I didn't do any research or much, not much research in that, in those 30 days. Um, so, but anyway, I did kind of what you, what you suggested, which is, oh, I want this kind of thing to happen. So it could be A, B, C, D, but I have to see if what's really possible, you know, in that time and place, so forth. So I left holes and things, but anyway. So I, I plan to do this and in, in, in self-publish. So I even picked out a publishing name. Uh, well, I'll just try to get an agent. So I just put it out there. And meanwhile, I'm working and working. And all of a sudden, I got an agent. And she said, I really love this. I'm going to sell this. And I thought, well, she's not going to sell this. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so so I meanwhile, fixing and working on it. And she sold it to HarperCollins. And I was so thrilled. And then it turned into a three book deal and then a five book deal. Uh, and the first book was um, published in, I think, 14 languages or something like that. That's the one you read. Mm. And um, so I I did not expect this, Anthony. And I really, um, because of all the reasons you said, there's so much homes out there, but he has their idea, et cetera. But all I can say is um, I wanted it to work for the most uh, fanatic Holmesian, you know, somebody who really knew the canon perfectly. I wanted it to work for that person. And I also wanted it to work for the casual reader who just wants a great ride. And I wanted it to work for people who love Benedict Cumberbatch, for people who love Robert Downey Jr., for people who hate Benedict Cumberbatch and Robert Downey Jr. I just wanted it to be an essential Holmes that would work for as many people as possible. But mainly it had to work for me because I was writing it. But I love the real original Holmes. And so primarily it's based on the original character. And 
Uh, a lot of people describe Holmes as being kind of an inkblot character. You know, you see in him what you, you know, what, what, yeah. what you're, what's already in your psyche. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of mystery to the character. He's not really a fully rounded, full, you know, filled in character. And so we project onto him our own strengths and weaknesses. So one of the things I decided to do that, and, and ex- I also made some decisions going in. I said, okay, he's done. 30, you know, 56 short stories and four novellas, but no novels of Sherlock Holmes. What would make, what would be different about a novel starring this character? What would have to be different? And I came up with several things. One is a novel needs to deliver some thematic content. It really does. I think even a genre novel, and I don't really like that term because I think novels are novels, mm. um, but even an adventure novel, even a science fiction novel, even a you know these things we call genres, mystery, need to deliver some meat, uh, which is theme to me. And they can't be theme heavy or suddenly you're, you know, that's, it, it will ruin it basically, but it has to be there if it's a novel. So I, the, the first thing I came up with was the theme, Art in the Blood, which is of course from a quote from uh, the Greek interpreter, Art in the Blood is liable to do the strangest things in talking about Mycroft and, and Holmes. <clears throat> so what I think is important in this book is that Art in the Blood, if you're an artist, you are particularly sensitive. You are you have more antenna out than the normal person. I mean, Holmes is definitely this. And the world, and, and there was a wonderful moment in the Downey film where he's sitting in a restaurant waiting for uh, Watson and his fiance to come in and the world is too much with him. So, I mean, I think that is true for Holmes. He's, he's, he's got these antenna out, which is why he folds into himself and stays in the little room at 221B when he's not working. Um, you know, it's the, he does, he, he doesn't go out partying and hanging out with people. Those people are too much. So, so you have these, so if you're an artist, you're gifted with this extra sensitivity. You're also gifted with another thing, which is seeing pattern where there's chaos for other people. So that's what painters do. They look at a, you know, they look at a scene, you know, we see like a river and leaves and trees and lots of people. And there's a dog over there and the, the, the. And they make a painting out of it that has a composition. But the rest of us just see lots of stuff. <laughs> we, we, we don't see a pattern. So artists see patterns, artists see more. Uh, and then typically, and this is expressed beautifully in a book I, I really like called Touched by Fire uh, by Kay Redfield Jameson. Um, she talks about how the artistic temperament and bipolar disorder have an overlap. She is bipolar herself. And many people would describe Holmes as being what we call bipolar now or manic depressive. Mm. Uh, he certainly conveyed, he certainly presented that way in the books. So to me, he's the ultimate artistic temperament. And if you look back at Victorian times, uh, Victorians, when they called somebody artistic, in quotes, uh, that meant several things. First, it could meant, it meant flaky. <laughs> it meant, um, it meant uh, very emotional, like, you know, and, and not reliable. It meant, and it could also mean gay, because they also, uh, yeah. men who are artistic were sometimes, uh, call it, were, were gay sometimes. So it, it meant a lot of different things, uh, but none of them were, were flattering at that time. So what is it? So I believe Holmes definitely has an artistic temperament. And um, and so I, my theme was, what are the perils and the gifts? How do they trade off? 
So there's art, you know, the, the woman whose child is vanished, she's an artist. Uh, there's an art collector who's very, who features strongly in there. And there's, you know, people who talk about art and buy art, but aren't artists. And what does that mean? And how do they look at art artists? And what, and what is the vulnerability of an artist? Why, you know, it's, there's a, artists have superpowers, which Holmes does, but they also, you know, have other things that, that, hold them back. So that was the theme. So I decided in going back to what, what would make a Sherlock Holmes thing into a, a viable novel. It needed a theme. Then the other thing it needed was a different kind of plot structure because Holmes in a short story, short story has a plot structure that looks like a Japanese bridge, just a simple arch over a little, little stream. Uh, and, you know, beginning, middle and end, he figures it out. But a novel needs a more complex one. And if it's going to last, you know, uh, 85,000 words or 90,000 words, there can't be a, a single case because he'd be done by page 30 and that'd be the end of the book. Yeah. So so there needs to be more than one puzzle. And it would only be elegant if they can, you know, if they combined in some way, if they somehow um you know, connected. And so that became my challenge. And those were the things I set out to do while maintaining uh, a Doyle-like pace and so forth. Yeah. I mean, talking to, you talk about, uh, you know, expectations and I think the converging plot, multiple puzzles that then turn out to be, you know, the same thing is, uh, uh, I think you have to do that. Uh, and you know, you, there are many mystery writers who do that, many non-mystery writers even who do that. I think you kind of have to, don't you? Because you'd just feel, I think the reader would feel cheated otherwise. You'd be like, well, why am I reading about this story if it has nothing to do with the other one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they, yes, they do need to overlap in some way. And how they convolve is the is either elegant or not. <laughs> and you, you aim for elegance, I guess. Um, and, you know, the thing, yes, so they have to convolve. Um, and then, and then there, you have to, with Holmes, you have to deliver on certain things. You have to del- deliver on the friendship between Holmes and Watson, because that's an absolutely key and, you know, bedrock element of these stories. Uh, and also one of the main attractions, I think. Absolutely. But, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's the friendship of, you know, of the millennia, really. Uh, everybody would like to, to, to have a Watson, but everybody would like to be a Watson to someone as well, I think. <laughs> so the flip side of the, as you say, the, the pressure, because there are so many other Holmeses out there, you know, it's been done by so many different other people. But kind of the flip side of that is that be, because there have been so many different interpretations and even so many of the well-known interpretations are so incredibly different in their approach, do you find that that brings you a certain amount of freedom as well? Because there's other other than Conan Doyle, there is no one definitive Holmes. You know, I've never thought of it that way, Anthony. Actually, I to me there is a definitive Holmes, and he's somewhere out in the ether. But I mean, Conan Doyle created him, and then there are interpretations. But I like, for example, I think um, you know, I have friends who are you know very who are purists and who hate BBC with Sherlock, you know, with Cumberbatch and Freeman. Uh, I'd love that show by the way. Um, and then there are people who hate Downey because it's too much action and, you know, it's too flippant or I don't know what all, or he's not tall. They don't like it because he's not tall or he, he doesn't dress right. You know, people will take umbrage in the, the certain things that differ, but to me, there is an essential Holmes out there and he's in my head and he's pretty clear right off of, um, 
Conan Doyle. And so if I sometimes hear Cumberbatch's voice when I'm writing, well, first of all, I chose to write about them when they're in their 30s. I, I set the, the the dates of my all, all of my books now. The fourth one's about to come out. Um, they're all in their, their 30s. So they're young men. Okay. Because, mm. uh, you know, we sometimes think from the Basil Rathbone and that era of stuff that they're all always in their 60s. But no. <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty vibrant 30 year old somethings, you know? So, so in me, in my, my head, they, they, they are who they are. And I hear, I, I don't hear just a single actor. I sometimes, I mean, Jeremy Brett comes in. I mean, I think he's very theatrical just as Holmes was on the page, you know, Holmes would get up and leap over the back of the sofa to answer the door. And Jeremy Brett did that, and then oh, theatrical. Well, it's right on the page in Conan Doyle, you know. So, so I mean, he's pretty clear as an original character. So, to me, it isn't really far off. All right, I don't feel like I'm taking liberties in that sense. Um, but the other thing, one of the complaints that some people have with the modern dramatizations is that they're too action-oriented. And and sometimes reviewers have said, well, she's a screenwriter, she'll put all this action in there. And it's like, well, <laughs> to that, I would have to say, if you look at in the aggregate of all of Conan Doyle's adventures of Sherlock Holmes, there's a tremendous amount of action in there. He falls into quicksand, he gets nearly strangled, he's, you know, he boxes, he, someone has knocked out a tooth. I mean, he, he had a fight and he sent the other guy home in a cart. And I mean, endless numbers that are running here and there not to mention the number of times that watson pulls his gun yes yes exactly there is action it's just that in a single given story given this little structure of the of the uh japanese bridge uh the simple structure of a, of a short story it might happen once it doesn't ha even happen in every story but it might only happen once whereas in a novel because you like you said Things have to keep happening. So, you know, a novel novel is a long form, just as a movie is. And that this is where I think my movie thinking comes in. It's not so much that I need to put action in. It's that a movie is like um, a suspension bridge with a lot of different palms that spend the bridge across a wide river. In other words, there's a bunch of these as opposed to a Japanese bridge, which just arcs. It has a single over a stream so because you have these the each one of these each one of these things that support the bridge in a in a long form uh, story such as a movie or a novel these are big like emotional turning points or they're action turning points and you have to have enough of them to sustain the length of the of the piece and so that's why there's more action scenes in my Sherlock Holmes novels, not because I'm a movie writer and I, I'm writing for a movie and I want them to move around. It's because this you need this to sustain the length of story. And also, you, you know, so I think earlier you said, how are my different? So one is that I have a theme. The other is that I am creating long form and I'm extremely aware of what that what that um the requirements of it. What that structure requires. Yeah. 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 Um, I'd be really interested actually to know, you're talking about sort of the, all the different versions of Holmes and uh, hearing actors' voices occasionally and things. I'd be really interested to know if you've, if you, the responses have varied, if you like, uh, from people as to whose voice they hear when reading it. Because while I was reading it, I absolutely heard Jeremy Brett's voice in your homes. I mean, like every line I could just imagine being spoken by Jeremy Brett, but 
I recognise that for me, that's because he's the version, the screen version that I grew up with. I had read the, the stories as well. But obviously, for my generation on screen, Jeremy Brett is Sherlock Holmes in the same way that, you know, for a certain generation, Sean Connery is James Bond or something, or Tom Baker is Doctor Who. Uh, those, yeah. those interpretations, those versions get burned in your mind. So I'd be really interested to know if you've heard from other readers for whom, you know, who might hear Benedict Cumberbatch's voice instead or Basil Rathbone's voice in your work. I actually have had all of those comments. In fact, one person said, oh, this is too Benedict Cumberbatch for me. This is not the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, really? Because <laughs> I, I don't think so. But um, but that, you know, but I think we imprint on Anna Holmes in a way. And uh, for me, Jeremy Brett, of all of the performers, got closest to Conan Doyle. And I so love his his uh, his work in the in the Granada series. I mean, I just I'm enamored of Jeremy Brett. Um, but I do also, like I said, I do love uh, Cumberbatch and also Robert Downey Jr. So to me, they're all kind of a variation on the original. But Jeremy being closest, uh, I th- I think. Um, so I I don't know. I just you know I have heard the, that criticism, but not reliably like i said one person said cumberbatch another one said too downy because he's jumping around or so i I don't know but (laughs) but to me that implies that you're getting the balance right (laughs) well i I think so i mean to me he's when i when i when this hits with a with a purist sherlockian i'm extremely happy i'm not only writing for them i'm writing for mainstream audience but um but when it hits for the purist i'm i'm pleased because I do. I do follow those constraints, and I do try to, uh, you know, with the with the exception of the, what the what a longer plot needs, and the exception of wanting to put a theme in. I'm otherwise uh, adhering as close as possible to the original intent of the stories. So it's fun. I, see, again, it's like so many constraints, Anthony, that this is makes it fun. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> well, given the complexity of the plots that's necessary, because this is a home story, and as you say, you know, there are certain expectations people have, including lots of clues and lots of you know uh, leaps Deduct- of observation and deductions. Yeah, from Holmes. Do you? I assume. Do you? A, a very. Well, for the first one, you clearly didn't. But maybe as you've gone along, do you outline quite? strictly or are you a bit more loosey-goosey in your your first draft i'm very loosey-goosey in my first draft although i know the main crime and i know who did it right i don't know how he arrives at it and i'm not sure yet how the a a b and c stories convolve um so that is found along the way and then it's done by many drafts if i could outline first i know i would save a ton of time i've never been fully able to do that so my process is uh a like I said, it's I have a concept. I have a theme. I usually have a theme, the title of the theme, the main villain, and uh, and who they've killed or who who is endangered or whatever. <laughs> I have the I have the main you know the A story in my head, um, but then the rest uh, I find. Um, I, I, I wish I could be more of an outliner, but I'm more of a pantser once those things are determined. Um, you, you use that term pantser? Yes, yes. Although it, you're, that's actually less pantsing than some <laughs> authors I know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not completely pantsed, but, it, but, but, but chapter by chapter it definitely is. Um, and I have tried to make myself outline because I think it's a more efficient way of working, but I just... Uh, I just can't really do that. Um, 
And, but I always, I'm always experimenting. Um, you know, I use uh, Scrivener as you do. We've talked about that. I think uh, when mm. we interviewed you for the London CWA, um, and you know, Scrivener's allows you to work in any multiple, <laughs> multiple methods, really. Um, and so I've tried a variety of things uh, using Scrivener, but but I am a pantser by by uh, nature. And so forth. Presumably, that means then that you're doing a lot of heavy lifting in your revision after you've got that rough draft done and you've figured out by the end of it, you know, you've kind of figured out, okay, so this is where it's going and how it's all going to fall down. But but the draft presumably is very rough at that point. And that's when you go back and do all the heavy lifting in that revision. Yes. Interestingly, uh, I just finished my fourth book and I'm about to start the fifth. Interestingly, as I've progressed in this series, I've found it's less rough at the beginning than it was the first time. Uh, And that's partly because I think I've learned and I've developed over time uh, where I start to go, okay, I need to connect A and B by now. Or I'll be writing along and I'm going like, too much talking, something needs to happen. <laughs> you know, or, or, or something like that. Or we are on a breakneck pace for too long, we need a breath. <laughs> you know, and I just start to sense that. So um and that and so those will factor in earlier now than they used to. And I think that's just by virtue of the fact that I'm on my my fifth one now. Um but so I, I do think there's a learning curve and um and I I must say I really enjoy working on these. But you asked me something earlier, Anthony, which I didn't really answer, which is why why would I not want to write uh, your own original Victorian detective? Yeah. Well, I I, I certainly have that in my head, <laughs> and uh, weirdly, um, I live in a in a Victorian building built in 1890, um, one block off Baker Street, and um, in this building. Uh, I'm sitting here in the in the in the sitting room of this building and I have an entire I have an entire concept that takes place in this flat. Oh wow. <laughs> of three women, three women who are roommates uh and who are very different from each other. So I do in fact actually have a concept for another series. So are you planning to take that up when you've finished with this the five homes books? Yes, I may write I may actually I have part of a short story which introduces these women uh, written. So I probably will complete that short story. Um, and yes, yes, I hope to, I hope to uh, propose that after. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to that. Um, also, apropos of nothing, I, uh, I have your second Holmes book here and that's now going to shoot up uh, towards the top of my to read list because uh, I didn't realize that it was about Isla Whiskey, of which I am a huge fan. So, oh yes, it is. <laughs> it is indeed, and I learned so much about whiskey doing this. In fact, I grew to really love whiskey. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. Yes, I'll, I'll definitely uh, yes prioritize that one now. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. All right, so uh, let's start to bring this to a close then. Thinking about, I mean, and you have had a, a very, very long uh, writing career, long and, and fruitful. What do you think that you're pretty good at? Huh. <laughs> What I'm pretty good at. Oh, I don't know. Oh, gosh. Um, Well, you know, I guess I'd say I'm pretty good at writing to extreme constraints. And I love the challenge of that because we've been talking about that. So Holmes is a set of incredible constraints. But I also I like to write sonnets 
which are, you know, so structured. I just finished, um, I just did something with the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. Uh, I put up a, a play, a Zoom play of The Blue Carbuncle, which I adapted from, you know, the, the original story. But at the end, I put up a, uh, a Gilbert and Sullivan uh, parody of the modern major general, which is for Holmes and Watson and Mycroft. So that's working to constraints. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, writing wow. lyrics for these characters in Gilbert and Sullivan style exactly and making them rhyme and so I think I think that would be my thing working to <laughs> working to constraints do you think maybe your history in screenwriting has influenced that because you know one of the things about screenwriting is you're almost always writing to order oh absolutely uh, it absolutely has uh, I've I taught screenwriting for, I guess, 11 years at UCLA Extension. And um, I said to them, you know, this is the art. There are so many rules in quotes about screenwriting. And um, like I tell people not to read uh, McKee, which is a a very, very thick book about all the rules of screenwriting because they won't write after that. But, um, (laughs) but, but but there are a lot of rules, but they can be broken down and, and used. And, um, and in the same way, my friend Betty Edwards, who wrote the Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain book, uh, she she said that anyone can learn to draw. And she did that by breaking down drawing, a very complicated uh, thing, into components, absolutely learnable components that you cannot fail. And then she she stacks these components, and then suddenly you can go in, in – and through the course of her book or through a five-day course with her or someone teaching her method, you can go from drawing stick figures to drawing a, a self-portrait that's shaded that looks like you. How interesting. So, so writing, I believe screenwriting is structure, is all structure, as they say, but it is absolutely learnable when broken down into its components. And those components do apply to good writing of all kinds. Uh, and you don't, you're not quite so constrained because as I said, you know, you can have the inner voice and lots of, you know, things and you can do things that would cost too much on the screen yeah. <laughs> and so forth when you're writing a book. Um, but, uh, but those things absolutely do help. And so having to write to those constraints is, uh, you know, screenwriters often can become very, very good novelists. All right. So, Turning it around, then what do you wish you were better at? I wish I was better at what your book is precisely about, The Organized Writer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Anthony, seriously, that book, uh, that book blew me away. I have so many books on organization and so many (laughs) time management and all this stuff. (laughs) But your book kind of nailed everything for me so beautifully. I have to tell you one of the things I took from your book that I'm doing right now. This is what I wish I was better at. Time management and prioritization. Okay, those are the two things I wish I was better at. Um, So I'm now putting these on my calendar. I'm putting these large banners of what is the main thing I'm supposed to be working on right now. Like right now I'm supposed to be finishing my annotations for book, book four. Okay, so mm-hmm. that goes across all these bunch of days, like however long it's going to take me. And then at the same time, I'm also supposed to finish a, a, an article on homes and music and it's due at the end of next month. So I've got those like bannered across. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't put hours of them actually in the hourly calendar. <laughs> so they're up there, but I didn't actually schedule them in as time blocks. And so, so time management, oh my God, you're so good at that. And, and just your whole, you know, your whole, all of your suggestions for organization. So I, 
Everything in your book is what I wish I was better at. (laughs) Bless you. You're very kind. Um, All right. What is something that you have read recently where the writing really impressed you and why? Um, The Windsor Knot um, is really, really fun. Sarah Bennett, I believe. And um, anyway, it's... uh, (laughs) It's the queen solving a mystery, solving wow. a murder. <laughs> and, and it's very funny, but it's very smart and it's subtle. And she's done her research. She's been a royal watcher for years and, and, and likes the queen. It's done with kindness and tongue in cheek, but it seems like all the details are really accurate. And it's fun. It's just like insanely fun. So it's The Windsor Knot is my current favorite read. All right. And what work of yours would you recommend our listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you before? Well, um, there are three books out right now, and um, I think I might suggest The Devil's Due, which is the third book. They, they Each one works as a standalone. They're sequential in, in time. It was 1887, 88, and 89, but, they, but you don't need to read them in order. Um, but my fourth book, uh, which is called The Three Locks, is coming out in March in the UK and April in the US. And uh, I think that one's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it takes place in London and Cambridge uh, and includes the very famous Cavendish Labs. Um, there's three young men who are in love with this very spiteful young beauty who disappears. And one of the, one of the young men is a scientist at the labs. So there's a priest. And the third is a is a, an aristocrat, so uh, it's quite fun and uh, takes homes in and out of London. There's also a um, a famous escape artist who uh, dies a terrible death. <laughs> There's quite a terrible uh, the self immolation that yes, you mentioned earlier. He self immolates yeah. <laughs> on stage, and uh, and then uh, she says with a grin. Anyway, <laughs> uh, as only a, as only a a crime writer could say, right? Um, and. And Absolutely. then let's see. What's the, oh yes, Watson receives a, a mysterious box uh, from it's from his past, and it's locked, and it's an absolutely impenetrable lock, which there are I've discovered in my research. Um, so it's about three different locks. Sounds great, Bonnie. Where can people find you online? They can find me at www.macbird.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at McBird, at McBird. And then I'm also, I have a Facebook page called The Sherlock Holmes Adventures by Bonnie McBird. And I have uh, quite a few people on that. All right. Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.